valley of the moon. Those that have died have slipped away from us, like mice into the grass, mice running softly in the valley of the wild yellow moon. What night brings? Up where the moon rises, I thought I saw my brother flying. Above my brother, below his shadow on the earth. This is the Mad River Anthology, and this is Rachel Wheeler. Celia Holmesley went to Humboldt State University, where she earned BAs in English and Journalism, and she studied with Judith Minty, and she got an MFA in Creative Writing at San Francisco State University. She's taught at Humboldt State University and College of the Redwoods. She's since has worked with developmentally disabled adults, and she is now a full-time mother of her son, Weston. How are you, Celia? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Fine. <laughs> so I um, have a book in my hand, Body of Crimson Leaves, that came out a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, do you want to talk about the process of how this came together as a collection? And Gosh, that book, uh, it was just years of poems that um, I compiled and recompiled sort of just probably over like a... I don't know, they're probably poems from maybe 15 years or or so. Uh, I guess when it finally, the collection finally got taken, it was the poems had been reworked enough times maybe, and they were the, sort of the best ones that I had. So it must have been ready or closer to ready. Mm-hmm. So all those years of of working on it and sending it out were worth it, in that, you know, because it I kept polishing it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, like my friend Ralph Angel, he's a poet in L.A., always says, you know, you put it, if once you have your book, you don't necessarily feel great about it, but you say to yourself, it's the best work I could do at the time. Right, right. <laughs> so I think that's sort of the how I feel about it. It seems like a really cohesive collection for having been compiled for that long of a period. Is Are those themes that have always been important to you? And Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose. I think... Um, you know, I'm so close to it, I can't really see outside of, of it. But I think, uh, yeah, I've basically been, it sometimes feels like writing the same poem over and over for, for years mm-hmm. <laughs> in some way. Uh-huh. And so, but putting it together was, it, it, I went into these meditative spaces and had to find, um, I would figure out how one poem spoke to the other, but this took years. <laughs> and it was really... Um, I mean, I probably could have just let the wind take it and then and then recollected it, and it would have been the same effect. <laughs> but <laughs> but in my mind, I I you know I was so careful about how I put it together. It was agony. Hmm. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it's a little different now when I write, but I think. How is it different now? Um, the poems are more like friends now. You know, they're more. Um, I think for a long time it was a struggle because, well, part of it's about control. So in some ways I have more control over them, in some ways less control. But I think it was always a struggle for control when I was younger writing, for Mm -hmm. sure. Because I 
my conscious mind would want to do one thing and then the unconscious would push it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn how to let the unconscious speak and then come back with the conscious mind and edit. So it took a, a while mm -hmm. in some way to, f to, to get, um, to feel accustomed to or just to feel more comfortable with. I, I used to have poems just like fluttering all over the house. It was literally as, you know, I could never have kept track of them if I wouldn't have actually gotten a collection, a half of those, you know, it would have just, I don't know, I just see them as dissolving or, or uh, who knows, in a, some flurry of poor mood, I might have burned them, I don't know. I, mm -hmm. burnt, I burned some, some old ones once, and that was actually a really neat thing to do. <laughs> wow. When you burn, when I burned them in the fireplace, the, um, it's amazing that the whole page would burn up, but the words you could still read. It was like they were little ashes of the poems, and that was a great way to get rid of some poetry. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. Well, do you want to read some of your your work that you have done more recently? So I can read this, this one. Um, so it's called Grandfather. When he takes my pale hands, he whispers to me, and my grandmother's scent, ashes of roses, flutters into the room. I stand before him, my grandmother, with the long white hair, and he asks me again to marry him. Um, anyway, it's just a poem. Of, the last time I saw my grandfather, he was in a nursing home, and... Um, and when he saw me, he thought I was my grandmother. Uh -huh. And so, in a way, I became her for a moment there. Mm -hmm. You have written about other family members. I remember mothers and grandmothers and stuff in here. Yeah. What? How do they feel about your poems about them? Well, the grandmothers had died by the time the collection was out. Okay. My mom read the whole book and. And she loved it. Uh -huh. <laughs> she doesn't like poetry usually, so but here I am, her daughter. Now I know having a son, okay, you love everything your kids do. Mm -hmm. So all of her compliments I have to just, you know, let fly. But, um, yeah, and there's nothing in there that's incriminating to her or anything like that. And I think I, think I was careful to leave anything out that would have been. I, I know my friend Joelle um, published her... Uh, uh, what do they call it? It's creative nonfiction memoir through Random House and got this book out. And that's all it was about was her family. And, you know, it caused some serious distress. Mm -hmm. It was all about her childhood and this and that. And it was before she had had a child. So, you know, it, you can bl you blame your parents for so much, I suppose. I mean, many people do until we have kids. And then it's like we see we could still, you know, implicate them but then it's like okay this is a serious business of ra raising kids mm -hmm. and so I think um but anyway even before that I, yeah I didn't want to hurt anyone and and I think the things I chose to include were just you know dreamy enough or whatnot that they weren't wouldn't be taken as anything literal anyway mm -hmm. which is really lucky you know that they're not just like these pure narratives that are just driving home. And, and then she did this and that, you know. Right. So it saves me in that way. 
but yeah i mean moms you know they're so important to to everything Mm -hmm. and and my grandma you know my whole dad's side i never i loved them but i never really knew them but i would um when i was little all my my these dreamy images around the parks i would spend parks in um orville area which was just this just this destroyed little town (laughs) <laughs> but when I was a kid, it was just hot. And so I'd see like a maple leaf at the park and it would be as big as like my whole face. And I, you know, I'd register it. And then years later when my grandma died and witnessing my dad's relationship with her, which was kind of interesting, there was that poem I had at the park. It was like news from a park green as heaven where he was, he was taking leaves and making a, just putting them into the water one by one and letting them flow down and this just came all out of sort of my unconscious, but it, it was speaking about him and her and his sort of, and, and yeah, this just all came out of, of that other deeper place. But it was sort of, you know, things I witnessed consciously for years and then and then, and then they told their story that other way. So. This is when it's a couple years old now and, um, It's called The Modern World. A deer is moving in the forest behind my house. I frightened her when I drove in an hour ago, the motor boasting its tires upsetting dust. But when the machine drone and the gust of diesel cleared, the deer returned to her natural state of tiptoeing in damp needles, nosing young fur, sampling their leaves, and gazing between the gate's iron bars which separate her from me. Watching each other the way we do is a passionate affair, as if she is a distant, primitive self. I am the creature she became, and we'd like to meld now if we can, before my world ignites, turns to ashes. So there's often some kind of dear or animal figure that comes in, seems like, to the poems over the years. Yeah. There was in graduate school, one of our assignments was to take someone's whole collection of work and talk about it, and a woman in my class um, read my collection at the time and just said that there was all this transformation with people turning to animals and animals turning back to people, and then she, she looked at my heritage, which is Welsh, and she said that that was part of that heritage that's really really neat yeah that is neat i kind of liked that interpretation but i had never thought of it that way yeah yeah well what about plants too it seems like there is a lot of plants yeah Mm mm-hmm yeah particularly the trees yeah i read i read one in your collection here that about the afterlife about a maple tree Mm -hmm. that was really beautiful oh thank you that image yeah, those neighborhood trees are sometimes really um, seductive in some way. Uh-huh. You know, it's like they're, when they're out of their element, and I could mm-hmm. see them really clearly when they're not in forests. Mm-hmm. Um, and afterlife. To embody the neighborhood maple, you would have to begin again, this time as a tree, and as a tree, survive the weight of leaves. Thick dreams upon your shoulders. Get used to that. Get used to the glow you utter from your neat street corner. 
Your roots promise lifeblood to spring's caterpillars. Now the children play upon you. They ride you into summer. You and your earnestness, your simple fortitude, are younger than they will ever be. Your ease of being defies getting old. You will grow into the peace of bees making honey. In the stillness of winter, you will throb like a clock, pulsing deep heartbeats. As Earth's rhythm comforts your core, a poet will describe you as her sister. For summer passed, and the bright autumn, then you held out naked arms, a tree on the verge of being human. So yeah, that's right. It was there. I like that. Thanks. I've got another one. So there was a caterpillar there, and I've got one, another caterpillar in one of these. Um, it's called Stepping Out. Stepping out, I saw a baby bird dead on the sidewalk. She must have fallen in the night, then frozen, or the cats found her. Entering the outer world, I never know what awaits. I unlatch my bone-thin gate, move through, latch it behind me. Today I held vigil over a tiny, crushed life. Tomorrow I may witness a caterpillar bristling with the colors of the spirit. I like that. <laughs> it's, it, it just um, indicates, I guess, a real fine um, eye for detail in the world and the natural world specifically and the sanctity of small things too. This is really neat. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, for years I would read a lot of Rilke. Um, I found in my dad of all people sent me an uncollected works of Rilke after it was like uncollected poems they'd found later, years later never been published and it was so profound some of them only two or three lines long wow. and it just blew my mind it was so awesome but you know in the early days I just started reading all the Rilke collections and of course Mary Oliver has always been astounding to me in her su supposed simplicity um, there have been a lot of influential poets like Louise Glick I would read for years kind of understanding how to write a poem. I think she was the one I was studying a lot. I liked yeah. her symbolism. Uh -huh. And then the Wild Iris collection that came out was so dark and wonderful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Yeats, of course, and then William Stafford was one of the early ones. I found him again, a big, um, a, a big collected works, which includes the one he wrote on the day he died. Oh. Um, that was... I loved uh, James Wright. I would read the, uh, all their work from beginning to end. So I would read the very early and then till right before they died. Wow. I'd see the progression. And I loved, uh, like James Wright's works, watch, seeing how he was so... Um, the poems were more formal at the beginning and, then, and, and rhymed and, and were in various rhyme schemes and such. And then he became more and more uh, free in his writing, as you might say, or even abstracted, particularly as like his very last work, everything was green and there were insects and mm -hmm. he had left all rhyme behind. Uh -huh. And uh, I mean, they were disturbing and strange. They, they had become so much of the subconscious had gotten in there. But yeah, I like to study whole 
whole lives of work. It's so, uh, I haven't been able to do that for a while, but that that's what I've loved. Neat. That, yeah, that sounds like a very valuable process to see. See all those changes, just like and then in the painting courses I've taken too, it's a similar movement usually. Wow. From, a, from the usually where they're they're painting very, you know, descriptive and and forms, and then they move over the years to abstract, you know. Um, so it does seem to be some movement of artists. I don't know that I've noticed. Uh-huh. I like it. Huh. Like Lee, uh, Lee Young Lee is another great example, right? All these narrative poems about his father and the peach trees, and just so beautiful and moving. And then. The latest collection, I can't remember what it's called, but very abstract. And a friend of mine couldn't even understand it. But I've been so close to his work that I like to me the abstract stuff is just like the other now because I mean it feels close and uh-huh. I, I kind of know what's underneath it. And but that's just after studying him a while. Right, right. So, did you see that? I mean, you're probably young; you can't really see in your own work. But did you start formally at all? Do you remember a time when you were? Writing more uh, formal poetry? My story was just that I was I was up here at Humboldt studying with Judith Minty, and I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. And then um, and my poems were maybe a little flowery. Not all of them, but they had that edge more than, I mean, they, not that edge, but they, they were that way more than the other, more mm-hmm. than abstract or more than languagey. But then I went to San Francisco State, and the poems just got completely chopped in the workshops, and I was... It was a a dark period anyway for me, but so there I learned about pairing them back and then um, sort of letting an image just stand alone. And uh, I think it was valuable, though. I, I mean, I sh- of course it was valuable, but for years my poems were like three or four lines long. Wow. Plus I was commuting and teaching, and so I was writing in the car, which is a bad habit. <laughs> Um, but no, no, they're slowly, I'm teasing them slowly back because I guess one of my feelings is that without the rhythm, something that I just remember readings when doing some readings when I was younger and when the poems were longer, the way the audience would sit and feel the poems because the rhythm was getting into their bodies. And then with the short, the shorter work, the way it becomes more work of the mind and more conceptual and less work of the body. It's like, it's not, it's not like listening to a song as, you know, in the same way, which I love that quality of poetry that it's um, song-like and can be mesmerizing and get into you. So short poems have a very important work, but, but I always long for the long ones and the long Whitman line, Whitman-like lines, mm. and the iambic pentameter that feels like slow, easy speech, and so that with my conscious mind is always where I want to go back with my poems, but it almost never does. Mm. So we'll see as the years go by what happens to come out. But mm-hmm. well, what is your process like? I, I know I want to hear more poems, but oh. can you describe how how it comes about that you write a poem? Um, oh, just. You know, just from some um, intense uh, feeling um, that just rides with me for a little bit, or I get a glimpse of something, often it's a tree, and then uh, like a first line will come to me, and then I just have to sit with it forever, or or maybe not, depending, and just sort of see what 
what's coming out. It's like I'm speaking. Another part of me is um, speaking, and then I'm forming it a little bit with my conscious mind, just kind of making it, uh, making it work. Um, you know, the basic way our thoughts work or the, our speech works, but but that other part that's driving it. If it doesn't drive it, then the poem can't can't go. Mm. There was one I was working on recently. There were these uh, tundra uh, swans that I saw in Lolita at a friend's house. I was working with that. And I got this really neat last line. And you know how it goes. When you get too married to a line, it has to go. So the line was really neat. And I kept trying to shape the poem to the line, knowing from years and years that that will never, ever work. Mm-hmm. But it's still, I toy with it because mm-hmm. I want the line. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing's just gone. Because there was never a rhythm either that I could... If the poem doesn't have some rhythm, some right rhythm, if there's choppy breaks, I usually can't... The only way I can keep... I can sustain it at all or keep any of it is to chop it to its to like three or four lines where it becomes just like a crystal image Mm -hmm. but without that rhythm it pretty much dies Mm -hmm. so I don't know just little things like that but but mostly I I just have to let it come out in some way and then usually sit with it at least a year like there's a poem I um, North Coast Journal published a couple weeks ago, a month ago, I can't remember now, but called Muriel, and that poem had sat at least a, maybe a year and a half. And and right before I sent it to them, I saw that there I needed to do a, a really important tense shift, and then it was closer to, white, to where it might be. In the patch of foliage the bonneted woman planted when she was lonely and wanting to feel the cool explosion of seeds shaken from the packet to her palms, the heady musculature of soil, sun licking her elbow tips, wind caressing the nuance of her bare neck. In that sacred place of longing, that garden, and though she rests on her bone-colored sofa, an eye shield directing her gaze by increments more deeply inward, Three bucks materialized to sample her delicacies, nuzzling the clothesline's nondescript dress now and again with the velvet of their antlers. There was one about your husband. That yeah. was nice. If you, you like wanted, that one? I do like it's that so one. It's so new. I, <laughs> it seemed like it hung together enough to to bring it in. But. Uh-huh. Anyway, it's called Husband, This Is Ours, A Marriage Poem. Every heart-shaped, star-shaped leaf fluttering along this fence line, every gold swinging orb of dandelion, all the clovers innocent as kisses, The bones, too, buried beneath grass, bones of the birds and the mice who died at the claws of our cats, bones of the fawn crushed on our road, bones of our laughter, of our terrible arguments, bones of our collective loneliness. Husband, this is ours, bones and weedy blooms and all that lies between, 
the river of sunlight, the cries of the chime pouring like wind through my mind, pouring forth a melody I'll never remember, never forget. A movement toward winter. In the deep peace of autumn, bees ride waves of drifting leaves, trapping dust like pollen in their coats. The bees ablaze, humming with sweetness, are matches held against the ever-quickening, still-unseen darkness. You've been listening to Celia Holmesley. This has been the Mad River Anthology. I'm Rachel Wheeler. The engineer was Tim Ayers. If you have questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. On our blog, you can find an online archive of past programs at madriveranthology.wordpress.com. The show is also available in iTunes. The Mad River Anthology airs the second and fourth Sundays of the month at 10 p.m. and is produced for KHSU located at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California.